0: that this conference was not my idea or of any other of the founder editors of Temenos who have all been much too busy with other things. The inspiration was from John Lane and from Satish Kumar who said they thought it would be a good thing perhaps to have a Temenos conference. And I said, yes, if I had to do no work at all and had nothing to do with raising funds... And they said, no, that was so. They would see to it that I had no work and that the funds would be forthcoming. And the hard work has been done here at Dartington, not by me, particularly by John Lane and by Sue Kellum, whom I would like to thank. And um, all we have had to do is to be here and Few of us had been writing papers until rather late into the night, uh, or rewriting papers rather late into the night, so it is quite extraordinary that this has come about by a tremendous piece of organization by John and Sue Kellum, whom I must thank before saying another word of any kind. When in 1980, Keith Critchlow, Brian Keeble, Philip Sherard, and myself decided that the desperateness of the present situation called for a review of the arts, grounded not in fashion but in first principles, we cast our first issue of Temenos into what we thought was a void. Instead, we found that in affirming that the arts are the proper language of the imagination and that all other uses to which art forms may be put are incidental to this, we found that we were giving form and expression to thoughts many shared, and from what had seemed void, answering responses came. Now, as we prepare for our eighth issue, we have come to think of Temenos less as a publication than as a living network. You, who have thought it important to come to our first conference, are Temenos, and not only the many past and future uh, contributors whom we are glad to welcome, but no less those readers and, and subscribers who have supported us hitherto. That living network is worldwide, not because it is our policy to be international, but because the themes with which we are concerned are universal. The mundus imaginalis, the kingdom not of this world, knows no frontiers in time or space. The materialist view still current in our world equates reality with the external world of matter, whatever that is, with mind as its passive mirror. Sacred tradition in contrast holds the contrary view that imagination is the living agent of which external nature is the mirror and is thus an ever active power of spiritual regeneration in every age. Blake understood the imagination to be not merely a mental gift some possess while others do not, but the human existence itself, the true man, the divine humanity, the universal ever-living self present in all. It is the imaginal world, the living and eternal world of the imagination, that holy land which is our concern. The term imaginal, used in this sense, has in our own time been given new meaning and currency by that great Ismaili scholar, whom we have more than once published, Henri Corbin. I had the privilege of meeting Monsieur Corbin at two of the Eranos conferences at Ascona, where he, with C.G. Jung and an illustrious group of scholars, made history in reopening the doors too long closed upon our inner worlds. Madame Corbin, president of... Corbin's own foundation, the Université Saint-Jean de Jérusalem, has honoured us with her presence at the opening of our first conference. And in a darkening world, we are here to do our best to keep the flame alight which we ourselves have received from those before us. Our teachers living and dead to whom we owe so much, and we hope to hand on some spark from that inextinguishable fire to those who will follow us. I am here, then, to welcome all of you, old friends and new, on behalf of Temenos... What is it that has brought us here from the four quarters of the world in whose destiny we share, for whose destiny we are responsible? From Australia and North America, from India, Poland, Iran, France, Greece, Switzerland, Spain, and Ireland. The theme of the conference, Art and the Renewal of the Sacred, presents a question rather than an answer, and one which involves us all. First, art. What is art? What is its place, its use? What did Shelley mean when he called the poets the unacknowledged legislators of the world? Perhaps they are called legislators because the arts are concerned with qualities, with meanings, and are thus the principal channels through which the world's value systems are disseminated and given form. In an age that looks rather to science and technology to pronounce on the values and aims of our society, it is time to reaffirm that so vital an issue as human values is not the realm of material interests, not a matter for those who weigh and measure and manipulate material phenomena, but of the human spirit of the living imagination which must be heard. Second... What is the sacred? In terms of secular materialism, the word sacred is meaningless, for it is immeasurable. It belongs to the invisible order of meanings and values. The sacred exists only as an experience. An experience to whose reality countless generations from time immemorial have testified, albeit the word does not appear in the vocabulary of our secular society in a world in which nothing is sacred. The sacred belongs to the order Coleridge describes as facts of mind, a reality whose doors are closed by the materialist premise which equates the real with the measurable and the utile. It was D. H. Lawrence who declared that knowledge is an experience and not a formula. And it is the task of Temenos to reclaim for the human spirit the primacy which secularized science has too long denied it, thus denying the soul the use of its wings and compelling us to walk only on the ground. The experience of the sacred is something immeasurable, which we may nevertheless know, perhaps the supreme human knowledge. And what of renewal? The word, the prefix re, implies a continuity, not an innovation, not some novelty of the art market, or some evolutionary breakthrough, Nothing different from what has always been and always will be. Nothing to shock or impress, but perhaps a reopening of that treasury of things new and old from which all ages have drawn, but to which our own world seems to have lost the key. The word temenos means, as you know, the precinct of a temple, a sacred place. From time immemorial it has been within the precinct of some shrine or sanctuary that the arts have been concentrated. Not only architecture, sculpture, painting and music, but drama and sacred dance and indeed the spiritual life of all the members of a society. If for our world nothing is sacred, in traditional societies one might truly say nothing is profane. In India, to this day, it is within some temple precinct that the epic poem, the Ramayana, is recited. The Greek drama arose within the context of Dionysian festivals and the great Japanese no-theatre in connection with certain Buddhist shrines. Until our own secular society, there never has been a time when the arts were not associated with whatever was held to be sacred. For the arts are the expression of our spiritual humanity, of what makes us unique in the universe. The human is not a mere extension of the animal kingdom as the media would have us believe, but a new kingdom continually embodied from earliest times in the things human beings value, make and do, in dance and music, in stories and painting and sculpture and all the arts. We have, from time immemorial, built our outer world in accordance with the invisible world of the imagination, the human kingdom itself, that divine imprint or signature affirmed in the story of creation as told in the book of Genesis, and other traditions have other symbols for the same reality. In the arts, we build our outer world according to our visions and our dreams on earth, as it is in heaven the inner immeasurable worlds the arts are not an accessory to life but life itself it would be as ludicrous to attempt to account for the arts in terms of some materialist theory of utility as to explain us merely serving some biological function, the survival of the fittest or some such thing, the ocelli of the peacock's feathers or the wondrous spectrum of the colours of flowers. The arts are not a means to survival, but rather the end to which we survive. In pre-industrial societies, and let us hope in post-industrial societies, if the world lasts, the arts have been something in which everyone participates. The decoration of simple things of every household, the pots and dishes, textiles and furniture, weapons and boats, all these are raised from mere utility to meaning and beauty to a value beyond that of utility. This is a theme which at least one of the speakers at this conference, Brian Keeble, will be considering. Lawrence Van der Post, who would have been with us at this conference but for other commitments, would have spoken. On behalf of that earliest of human races, the African bushmen who left their signature on sacred rocks and mountains like the Aborigines of Australia and the native races of America and the people who painted the animals of the caves of Lascaux in the Dordogne. The Bushman's sense of the transcendent expressed in a rich mythology of stories of stars and mantis, lynx and beetle, flowers and all manner of living creatures linking heaven and earth in a single indivisible life is no less clear and intense so Lawrence van der Post has eloquently shown us than that of any civilized society. When and how and why as our civilization so lost its way. Historians may discuss endlessly how the modern West has come to hold the materialist view of man and his universe, how man, known to all traditions as eternal spirit, made in the image of God, has come to seem an accident, an insignificant part in a mindless mechanism. However this state of affairs has come about, it is a situation in which we all find ourselves... What began in the West, indeed in England above all, is now worldwide, but materialism is no longer sustained by the optimism of the 19th century, by the evolutionist myth of an ever-onward and upward progress towards some vague utopia. On the contrary, our machines have become a threat to our very existence. They too are made in the image of our fantasies in a dark world, cut off from the divine archetype. The mechanistic view of matter, which was the basis of the whole edifice of Western materialism, is now an obsolete hypothesis. Yeats foretold that within two generations, the mechanical theory would be found to have no reality, and time has already fulfilled the poet's prophecy. Maybe there are still some who cling to their faith in science's ability to solve, if not this year, then next year, or the year after, all human problems. But man does not live by bread alone. We are well aware now of our spiritual starvation, a hunger which the affluent society can do nothing to satisfy. Meanwhile, traditional landmarks have been swept away and the secularized institutions of our society cannot replace for us those structures and frameworks which in the pre-industrial world sustain the inner life of our ancestors by means of value systems expressed both in teachings and in works of art. Such forms give coherence to the inner universe of whole societies Many now are looking for some way of reaffirming the sacramental in life because it is in our nature to seek expression and fulfillment for what is in us. But where now shall we find those life-giving springs? For many, the churches no longer provide that sacred source and seem curiously beside the point And if the art forms of any religion are a measure of its spiritual vision, there is little in the reformed liturgies or in the religious art of the present time to kindle the heart or enlighten the mind. The temenos is no longer to be found there. Time flows only one way. And whereas the source is timeless, present everywhere and always, temporal institutions and civilizations have their beginning, flowering, and end. Some would say that every religious tradition inspired as these have been by some timeless vision may always lead us back to that source if properly understood. Others would recall the words which Jesus spoke about not putting new wine in old bottles. And for many of us, this predicament is painful and hard to resolve. Then there are those who would like to see art as a substitute for any spiritual tradition. Blake proclaimed religion, the imagination, the divine vision, the inner light, the disciples of Jesus, the imagination, he declared, are all artists. Painting, poetry, and music, man's three ways of conversing with paradise that the flood did not sweep away. The flood of materialism already rising in Blake's day, Yeats's formless spawning fury of what he calls the filthy modern tide. Yeats identified Blake's imagination with the self of the Upanishads. He too followed the religion of art, philosophers and theologians offering, according to Yeats, only some help. Both poets acknowledged the sacred source, the Holy Spirit within. Yet, now we see the word creativity used to mean little more than self-expression of any and every kind. Traditionalists will be quick to point out that in every pre-industrial society, art is itself fed and nourished by some spiritual tradition, whose symbolic language it uses and and whose expression it is. The two, tradition and imagination, have gone hand in hand, the arts embodying some shared vision. But we live in a situation in which the arts are themselves the expression of the very secular materialist ideologies which deny the spiritual order altogether. Such art reflects only the surface of things and the age's despair and alienation. However heartfelt the despair, it is not the bread of life. However sincere the expression of alienation, ignorance is not knowledge, blindness is not vision. Such art does nothing, and can do nothing to enlighten, to open the dry springs and wells within ourselves. Thus, the secular arts, far from bringing a remedy, are only one more symptom of the disease. Where the salt has lost its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? So that is where we are. These are the problems that concern us. The modern movement between the two world wars proclaimed with confidence and energy a program of liberation from the past, a new beginning, a revolution that may have swept away much that was obsolete, but what then? Destruction is not creation. And what of the new world so bravely heralded? After liberation, what? Instability, striving after originality, and so called experimental art are ephemeral and lead nowhere. One thing alone makes a poet, Blake declared, imagination, the divine vision. And that vision is not to be found by experiment, by trial and error. Yeats declared that truth cannot be discovered, but it may be revealed. And Blake would have agreed with that, for he wrote, "'Some people flatter themselves that there will be no last judgment "'and that bad art will be adopted and mixed with good art, "'that error or experiment will make a part of truth, "'and they boast that it is its foundation. "'These people flatter themselves. "'I will not flatter them. "'Error is created. "'Truth is eternal.'" Of course our situation is perhaps less unprecedented than we like to tell each other. In every time and place, our relation with the timeless has to be established in a new way. We cannot simply live in or copy the past. Greek philosophy or the teachings of the Lord Buddha may seem to us a fountain of wisdom, but Socrates and Prince Siddhartha were speaking against a background of the barbarism and ignorance of their day. They had no such fountains, it was they who opened them. We see in Gothic architecture a supreme expression of the Christian vision, but there were no Gothic cathedrals to serve as models for those who built them in Europe's dark ages. They were the expression of a living vision. And so, with Haydn and Mozart and Bach and Wagner, who in retrospect seem parts of a continuous stream, but each is unprecedented, each what T.S. Eliot calls arrayed on the inarticulate. Such continuity is an optical illusion. It exists only after the event, which is always unique. Prophets of doom cannot foresee where the next fountain will spring up to fertilize the earth again. Looking back on my own lifetime, to name only poets, the springs of imagination have not failed. I think of Rilke and Yeats and Tagore, of Eliot and David Jones, of Edwin Muir and Dylan Thomas, of Vernon Watkins and David Gascoigne, of Robert Frost and Saint-Jean Perse, to name but a few who have kept my own soul alive. It is an awesome moment when we look round and realise that all those great figures of our youth have left the stage and we have to play our part. We are the living generation who has to carry the eternal flame and we are bitterly aware of our shortcomings. Yeats's symbol of that flame was a candle in a wave always about to be extinguished and yet burning on. Perhaps that flame has always burned under the arch of the next engulfing wave and always will. Prophets and visionaries have always thought their age the worst, and ours is perhaps not different in that respect from theirs. Yet, history does not repeat itself. For the people of the book, history is linear, having a beginning and an end, a single process. The concept of sacred history is again one our secular age has forgotten. Each phase in that sacred history is unique. And the last thought I wish to leave with you is the prophetic vision of Joachim of Flora, who wrote of the everlasting gospel. It was he who wrote of the three ages, the age of the father, pre-Christian Jewish history, the age of the son, established by the apostolic church, and the age of the Holy Spirit often invoked in the context of the Protestant Reformation with the interiorization of the sacred mysteries and their symbols. Of late I have come to realize the deep import of this theme. We know that the true temple, the true temenos, is humanity itself the temple of the Holy Ghost. Must not the true temenos now be sought within Perhaps this is obscurely discerned by all those writers of verse and painters of pictures, however untalented, for whom such writing, such painting, is a form of meditation, of exploration of the inner worlds, an attempt to wind Blake's golden string, which he assures us will lead us to heaven's gate. Jung, himself an inheritor of the Protestant tradition, in our century has shown us those doors within every individual man and woman that have long been closed. Jung it was who reminded us that the sacred, the numinous, is no mere article of faith but an experience to be attained. I don't believe, I know, were his words in reply to an interviewer who asked him whether he believed in God. Words this century needed to hear. We don't anymore believe in beliefs, but we do thirst for knowledge, for the experience of the lost vision. But these are themes we're here to consider, there are no easy answers. You will in the next three days be hearing papers from a number of speakers whose shared ground is an aspiration towards, a hope for, some far gleam even of the sacred. There will be different approaches, different standpoints. Temenos is not a school, does not represent a party or any other form of organization or commitment to a certain point of view. The centre we seek is one, but each speaker holds a certain position on the circumference, and this could not be otherwise, since the world of imagination (coughs) is not a set of propositions um, or a programme to which some group or party subscribes, but a variety of experiences, of approaches, of glimpses and discoveries, as different as we are, who bring each our own insight, fragmentary and incomplete, but at all events, a living experience. The truth is not a lowest common multiple or highest common factor of all these visions, but lies in their whole range and variety. You will hear from the speakers of this first Temenos conference, each of whom shares our common aim. But each of you here will likewise have your own unique experience, your own glimpse or vision no less unique and no less sacred. To the experience of the sacred, none can lay exclusive or dogmatic claim any more than we can to our sight of the one sun each sees with different eyes. We have arranged that on each day we shall consider one of the three principal relationships in which we stand to our universe. On the first day, we will be considering mankind's relation with the transcendent, on the second day, the human scene, and on the third day, our relationship with nature. In such a conference, we can but hope to indicate a few themes, to offer a few clues perhaps, at the end of that golden string, we can at least make a start. Besides John Lane and Satish Kumar, I wish to thank a number of people who have helped in various ways with this conference. First of all, the Dartington Hall Trust for making available to us this beautiful and world famous hall and accommodation, and there are besides three sponsors of the financing of the conference, whom I must also thank. First, Mr. Morris Ash and the Howe Green Trust. Morris Ash and his late wife Ruth, daughter of Leonard and Dorothy Elmhurst have been the moving spirits of Dartington and all its rich achievements in support of the arts and education for a number of years, and we are very sorry not to have Maurice Ash with us uh, during the conference. He had intended to be here, but is unfortunately not well and unable to return to England to be with us, and I'm sure we all send him our very good wishes for his recovery. Second, the Gulbenkian Trust, also represented by the Director of the Trust who has gone out of his way to be with us, Mr. Kim Taylor, and third, the Eleanor Barton Trust. Ideas are all very well, but financial support is a living expression of generosity and one other uh, one other Generous gesture, not financial this time, has also been shown us by Mr. Gerard Casey, who is going to present to everyone attending a copy of the novel of his late wife, Mary Casey, entitled The Kingfisher's Wing. And you may wonder why, until I tell you that Mary Casey, who was the daughter of the youngest daughter of the Brilliant Poe's family which included T.F. Llewellyn and John Cooper Poe's and she has written this novel which is in fact a fictional life of Plotinus and for how could any conference on the sacred and on the meaning of the arts not in Europe owe oh, a debt to Plotinus, the father of Neoplatonism, which is the true religion of all poets and artists and has wound its way inside and outside Christianity from the third century when Plotinus taught in Alexandria to the present time, the time of W.B. Yeats who chose Plato and Plotinus for a friend. And so we are extremely grateful to Gerard Casey. The novel isn't yet ready. We all know what publishers are. Some of us who are publishers know why. And that is also the case, but it will follow. And it seems to me that it is the most extraordinarily generous gift that he has uh, done in making us this gesture. Now, tomorrow I will be your chairman to introduce our speakers. And on the second day, my old friend... Poet and Professor Robin Skelton of Victoria University, Canada, founder-editor of the Malahat Review, who has crossed the Atlantic in order to do so. And on the third day, John Lane. Uh, But there are also other things besides lectures. You will find in the, uh, what is it called, the Café, the, no there's an exhibition of paintings, it's just five minutes walk across the road of artists who either have or will be uh, represented in some way in Temenos there are the beautiful paintings of the collection of Dartington Hall which includes work by Rabindranath Tagore, by Winifred Nicholson, by David Jones paintings by John Lane the present uh, director and some by uh, Artists who have lent their work, who have contributed to Temenos, Thetis Blacker, um, Jan LeWitt, uh, Keith Critchlow, and uh, you will be able to see that there is work being produced at this time which is neither reductionist, nor despairing, nor nihilistic. This very lovely small exhibition. And in the, you may be surprised to see in the program meditation at 7 a.m. This does not mean that there is any obligation to meditate at 7 a.m. And some of you may wish to do so in privacy. But for those who wish to meditate in a group, Satish Kumar has said he will be in the solar room at 7 Uh, a.m. I don't suppose he'll find himself quite alone. But uh, that is that is something you may or may not wish to do. And also, I've had a message that Penelope Neal Smith has offered yoga at the same hour, 7 a.m., at the Poston before breakfast. And if anyone staying at the Poston wishes to take part, will they contact her? And, of course, in the evenings, we are going to have various forms of the thing itself uh, on... The last evening, there will be a reading of poetry. Tomorrow, uh, Santosh Pal, who is not only a scholar, but also a dancer of the Indian classical dance, will dance, and Teresa O'Driscoll will sing Irish songs. And tonight, we are going to experience something far better than words and that is music and Mr. Doshikazu Iwamoto the Japanese flautist whose work may be familiar to you has kindly consented to play to us on the Japanese flute whose sounds will presently transport us into the world of imagination itself thank you